Look at Maricopa County right now. Audits are good. Good audits are good. Fake, partisan, after the fact, made up, sloppy audits are bad. And that was an example of a really bad audit. It wasn't an audit. It was anything but. Welcome to the DFL Debrief. My name is Brian Evans. I'm the Communications Director of the Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party. This week, the cast of the DFL Debrief is actually out in Virginia, helping to bring that election home for Terry McAuliffe and for Democrats up and down the ticket. So instead of doing one of our normal episodes, we are going to be bringing you part two of our interview with Secretary of State Steve Simon. In the interview, we talk about a lot of really important, interesting things, his accomplishments in office, conspiracy theories related to voting voting machines, fraudits, the big lie, and so much more. So be sure to tune in and we'll be back with your regularly scheduled programming next week. We, we talk about protecting the right to vote uh, for all Americans. And one of the things we see in Minnesota is because we are such a welcoming state, we have a number of refugee communities, immigrant communities, and the face of this state is changing as we become more increasingly diverse. And how, how has that impacted your work as Secretary of State? And, and in particular, what is your office and other election administrators around the state doing to cope with uh, uh, some of the challenges as our state becomes more and more? diverse and opportunities, I should say. (laughs) Well, one of the things I'm proudest of that we've done in our office is something that we did not because a law or a court or anyone told us we had to. We did it because it was the right thing to do. And that was that we have more than doubled the number of non-English languages that we translate materials in uh, on elections. So it used to be five, now it's 12. And once in a while, I will get pushback from folks who will say some version of this. They'll say, hey, help me understand here. You can only vote if you're a citizen, and you can only become a citizen in most cases if you pass an English test. So by definition, why should anyone who's legally entitled to vote even need anything that's not in English? Fair question. Good question. I don't wag a finger in anyone's face. The answer to that, to me anyway, is two things. First is personal. I grew up in a bilingual house. I know how the real world works with this stuff. Mm -hmm. My mom spoke fluent, almost accent-free English. That's not the point. When it came to technical instructions, I don't care if it was the refrigerator manual or a government document, she preferred stuff in her own native language, as would any of us. If we were a Minnesotan in France or China or whatever, and we spoke the language there fluently, we'd still want our native language uh, when it came to explaining technical stuff. Okay, that's number one. Number two, and most people don't know this, Minnesota started translating elections materials into foreign languages in 1896. Not 1996, Mm. 1896. The languages then were Swedish, Norwegian, French, German. You get the idea. The only difference between then and now is the languages. There's no principal difference. We did it then, and in an unbroken chain, we are doing it now. But we are adjusting and adapting to make sure that the folks who are our audience are the folks who are here and speaking those languages. And so I'm really proud of that. And we, we've received, you know, a lot of, um, uh, you know, pats on the back and, and people who have said that that was the difference between them or their families voting or not voting is that we made it accessible from a language standpoint. So that's one example of what we're doing. And I wouldn't be surprised if a few years, if we added more languages, we're not going to stop at 12. We're going to uh, do as many as it takes to get as many people in Minnesota engaged in the system. 
Steve, we know um, that a democracy works best when more people participate. And, of course, 2020, uh, we saw in many parts of the country, Minnesota included, record high turnout. But that that's, hasn't been the case for some years here in this country as we see declining voter participation rates. And as people throughout the world are fighting for the right to vote, fighting to make sure that they have a type of government that would allow them to have a voice in charting the course of their country or their city or their community. Why is fighting hard to protect the right to vote in this in this country so important at this time? Why is it so fundamental to who we are as Americans that that right to vote is provided not just to a certain group of people, but to all people, regardless of their political ideology, regardless of where they live, regardless of where they come from. Why do you do this work? But why is it important to defend democracy? Because everyone needs to have their say. And now more than ever, there's more on which people need to have a Mm -hmm. say about who governs them and how. Uh, You know, we could go issue by issue. That's not so important for this discussion. But the point is, it's something that my family who fled from Eastern Europe didn't have a simple say in who governs them and how. So it's terribly, terribly important. And it's important that we fight as uh, as much as we can against those who would take us backwards, who would put up barriers, who would make it harder for no good reason for people to exercise that right to vote. So it's really important that people have that say and that they use their, uh, their, their vote as their voice. And let me just say, Ken, I don't want to hijack your question, but you know, I do a lot of speaking and a lot of interaction with a lot of folks around the state about nonpartisan voter outreach, uh, whether it's uh, you know, high schools or whether it's a particular demographic or geographic communities, you know, a lot over the state. And one of the things I say a lot is this. In my opinion, too many voter drives have been focused only on the sort of altruistic reasons, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that you should vote because it's the right thing to do. You should vote because uh, you should be part of something larger than yourself. You should vote because people fought and bled and died for the right to vote. All those are true. We should never, ever ditch those reasons. But we need more often than not to add to those and say, in addition to all those things, it is also in your interest to vote. It is in your interest. This isn't an act of charity. This is not a blood drive. We're not asking you to do this selfless act for someone else. We're saying you should do it for you. That's right. It's in your own interest. So framing it that way, I think particularly for younger voters and particularly for some in traditionally marginalized communities, that has a real effect. And I think that's that's part of the secret sauce in Minnesota that has put us in such a good position in terms of voter turnout. And let me just say, no one loves talking about us being being number one more than me, right? But, but <laughs> Or Minnesotans generally. Right, or Minnesotans generally, right? But let me just say this. Let's not break our arms patting each other on the back either in this sense. We got a lot to do. That's 20% of voters in a presidential, hotly contested presidential election who are not voting. And we all know that there are communities around the state, whether it's geographic, demographic, whatever, who do not vote at sky-high levels. And that's on all of us. That's on all of us. We well, don't have to be part of those communities, but we got work to do. We can't just pat ourselves on the That's back. right. And I think, you know, it's hard sometimes when we talk about percentages to really put that in a term. So when you think about the fact that Minnesota has you know, a little over 5 million people in this state. Uh, 20% of that is, you know, a million people who are not voting in this state for whatever reason. One million of our fellow citizens in this state uh, are choosing not to participate, right? And uh, 
you know, I, I think that's a whole nother piece of this, which is voter education and inspiring people to vote. But in many parts of the country, um, that's not enough because there are real structural barriers in place uh, that whether it's government barriers or other barriers that have been put in place very purposely to, to, to make sure that certain people can't vote. And, uh, you know, I, I've been proud of our tradition here in this state, both Republican and Democratic secretaries of state, who through a nonpartisan lens have understood their responsibility to make sure that our democracy works for everyone and that everyone has a right to participate. And so you've continued to carry that torch, not for the DFL party, but for Minnesotans. And, uh, you know, we thank you for that. That has been our Minnesota tradition, no question, which is why it's so alarming to see what's been going on over the last you know, six, eight, ten months all over this country. People putting up roadblocks to voting, people making it harder, uh, people adding hassle rather than subtracting it, and for no good reason. You know, we hear a lot, obviously, and there's a lot of coverage pay and attention paid to places like Florida and Texas and Georgia. But less attention is paid to those places that either are not big states or are not swing states. For example, in the state of Iowa, they just lopped off an hour of polling time. Just lopped it off. I cannot yet determine the good faith reason for that. Uh, Polls are going to be closed an hour earlier in Iowa. In Montana, a state that, like Minnesota, has a groundbreaking reform called um, same-day or election-day voter registration. Your listeners may know Minnesota is one of 16, 17 states now where— You don't have to be registered before the election. You can walk into the polling place on Election Day and register totally bipartisan over the years. It's, again, an ingredient of our success. The state of Montana, you don't hear about it because it's not a big state or a swing state. They eliminated it, one of the first states ever to do so. Um, And then there are other examples in the state of Missouri right now, believe it or not. Now, this hasn't passed yet, but I cannot believe they're considering this. In the state of Missouri, they are considering a law that would say that if an election office receives someone's absentee ballot and there's a defect in there, they no longer have to contact the voter to tell them that there's a defect. So, for example, they forgot to sign it or they got to, forgot to get a witness. The law in Minnesota and every other state that I'm aware has an obligation in the law that someone who receives that ballot, hey, you got it's common sense, right? You reach out to the voter, hey, you may not know this, we can't count it unless you... You, you cure this defect. You know, you, you got to sign it. You were probably busy. You missed it or you need a witness. They would get rid of that requirement in Missouri. No good reason. No good reason other than, I suppose, to make things harder just because they can. And, and that's a shame. And that's why Minnesota really is a shining beacon for the rest of the country. Um, I get calls all the time, Democrats, Republicans in office saying, how do you guys do this or how do you guys do that? And, and that should make all Minnesotans feel good. Um, we are a model when it comes to democracy and an accessible democracy. That's the most important thing. Don't you think if, if there's any silver lining in the 2020 election, it's that we were able collectively, elections administrators, Republicans and Democrats alike throughout the country, were able to expand the options on how people could actually vote. And as a result, so many uh, of the lies and the sort of conspiracy theory and a lot of the misinformation was proven to be incorrect, which is actually, if you give people more options in the way of actually exercising their franchise and voting, they will participate, which is why we saw record high turnout around the country. Um, You know, I I, I think about this, it's not completely analogous, but I remember people talking about electronic 
electronic meetings years ago. Oh, you can never do it. No one knows how to use a computer. No one knows how to use Zoom, right? right? Well, here we are. I mean, everyone, including you know the grandma down the street is using Zoom now, right? Point being is, is that I do think that one of the silver linings is even Republican election administrators around the country now have recognized, well, maybe, maybe you know, all of that, uh, the, the sort of boogeyman in the closet arguments of, of not doing this were proven wrong in the last election. Totally right. And you are right, Ken, that that is actually a bipartisan point in one dimension. Look at Maricopa County right now. Some of your listeners have maybe followed that joke audit that they had out there. And I, 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 we call it the know, fraud at Steve. Yeah, we do I, I anyways. Don't, I, don't, I don't want to be too um, uh, flip about it, but it really was a catastrophe. Um, audits are good. Good audits are good. Fake, partisan, after the fact, made up, sloppy audits are bad. And that was an example of a really bad audit. It wasn't an audit. It was anything but. My point is there in a real show of principle, the head of elections in Maricopa County is an elected partisan Republican. He runs with a party label. He runs the election again and again and again, including recently in testimony on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., vouched for the processes, said over and over again the election was fair and it was accurate and it was conducted with integrity. And he has, probably to his political detriment, I'm guessing, reached out and spoken out Again and again and again. But yeah, I, I just think, um, you know, we got to be honest with people and we got to keep on saying what the truth is. I'm not naive. You aren't either. That alone isn't going to, you know, uh, turn the aircraft carrier around. I understand that. This is a long term process. But at a minimum, you got to meet the lies with the truth. Yeah, that's like that's a really good point. I mean, yeah, we all have changes we would like to see made to our voting systems. I mean, I think automatic voter registration is a great thing that should be implemented more widely. But I don't think that elections that don't have automatic voter registration as a feature in them are inherently illegitimate. And they, yeah, they'll get asked about these conspiracy theories and then they'll just substitute in, well... I want to see changes X, Y, and Z happen as if to say, therefore, the election was illegitimate. And that is just immensely frustrating. But the other thing I would add that you hear a lot is some version of, well, questions have been raised. Mm -hmm, Well, mm -hmm. my constituent are asking questions. I'm just asking questions. Right, exactly. (laughs) You know, two or more than two can play at that game. And these kind of sly... Uh, you know, like uh, under the table arguments about like, well, it's not me saying it. It's just Mm -hmm. questions have been raised. You know, that's a dangerous game. One of the places that their conspiracies have really drifted to is voting machines. What is your elevator speech to folks who will raise voting machine conspiracies with you to just put some someone at ease or attempt to put someone. It's not that easy, of course. But what is kind of your pitch on voting machines? Yeah, what I say is, look, we have a super rigorous process in Minnesota, more rigorous than most states. I don't think the election equipment vendors like it very much because we make them jump through a lot more hoops than in other states. Let me just give you an example. Yeah. Under Minnesota law right now, um, we can't even look at an election machine to certify it in our office. That's one of our duties to certify it. We can't even give it a look unless it has first gone through certification by a federally approved test lab. Then and only then is it even on the menu for us to look at. Then we have a public process. I want to emphasize that anyone doesn't have to be someone with fancy credentials or a journalist. Anyone off the street can come to our office. Me. You, anyone, anyone can come in in off the street and watch us do what's called the certification Mm -hmm. process. It usually takes a couple days, Mm -hmm. so it's a long thing. And we, in public view, 
put these machines through the paces. We mm -hmm. try to screw them up. We try to uh, put in overvotes or undervotes. We try to foul up the machine mm -hmm. in some way and see if it'll withstand that. Then and only then do we go through the rest of the rigorous certification process and certify the equipment. And by the way, unlike most states, we don't have a one-size-fits-all thing. It's up to every county which brand or type or whatever. As long as it's certified, mm -hmm. both federally and Minnesota, they can choose it. So we don't dictate what county uh, chooses what sure. election equipment. If Hennepin County wants to choose vendor X and Lake of the Woods County wants to choose vendor Y and... Uh, you know, uh, Kitson County wants to county wants to choose vendor Z. That's that's perfectly fine. We just do the certification, and then it's off to the races. Counties pick what they're going to pick, but we are super rigorous in Minnesota. Well, I mean, I've heard that when you're running a grand conspiracy, the best thing is have it be really decentralized. That's always incredibly <laughs> well, helpful. You know, I, loose control I, over I, the conspiracy. You know, it's funny you, you you make that quip, but you know, I've said before, like. The good part about this decentralized system where it's up to the counties, where the people actually counting the votes, they're not in one place. They're not in our office. They're fanned out across the state. The great mm -hmm. part is if someone were going to really hijack an election in this state that way, God, a lot of people would have to be in on the plot. Right. This is not Ocean's Eleven, where like <laughs> 11 guys <laughs> knock off the casino through their wit and charm and skill. Um, that can't happen. And so, and that's a good thing. That's the way we want it. That's the way it's been year in and year out going back for decades. That's, again, one of the ingredients of our success in terms of integrity and in terms of voter confidence in the system. We hope you're enjoying this interview with Steve Simon. I just wanted to quickly interject to let you all know that we're going to be doing everything we can to help reelect Secretary of State Steve Simon, Governor Tim Walz, Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan. DFLers up and down the ticket. There are a lot of really important races on the ballot. And if you want to keep up with the work that we're doing, a great way to do that is text DEBRIEF to 94200. That is DEBRIEF to 94200. Thanks so much for listening. One thing I wanted to ask you about is you briefly mentioned the Arizona audit. Uh, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about you. You're, you're in sort of an interesting position of having expertise in audits, given the kind of national effort that you were part of with other secretaries of state to establish best practices. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah. that and uh, whether Arizona followed any of those best practices? Right. They followed basically none of those best practices. <laughs> and just so your listeners know... So there were eight of us who quietly this summer, four Democrats, four Republican secretaries of state, quietly, privately, we met and negotiated over the summer. We had a number of conference calls, Zoom meetings and whatever, didn't tell anyone about it until the final product was done. And we coalesced, we agreed uh, on a handful of principles. Like if you're going to have an audit, here are the things you ought to have. And it starts with what for me is just the most basic thing, which is make sure you figure out the rules before you play the game. <laughs> mm -hmm. You don't make stuff up after. What if after a Vikings loss, the Vikings leaned on the NFL to say, we're playing a fifth quarter. That's it. And you just made it up after the fact. They could use that. Actually. You know, if you're going to have five quarters. Why didn't we think of yeah, this yeah, before? Right. Well. If you're going to have five quarters, then establish that beforehand. I may disagree. I may think that's silly. But let's go into the game or the contest or the election all knowing what the rules are. We might have gripes and grievances about what they are, but let's know what they are. So item number one, both on the list numerically and to me most importantly, is, hey, have the rules of the game set before the game. You don't make up stuff and create new layers and levels of review after the fact. Also, you shouldn't farm it out to partisans. 
I mean, this wasn't done in Arizona and some of these other states um, in some, you know, bipartisan manner. It was farmed out to groups like Cyber Ninjas in Florida, which didn't know what it was doing, had nothing to do with elections, whose owner had already put his thumb on the scale by loudly proclaiming after the election uh, that he thought the election was stolen. You don't do that either. You make sure you've got, you know, federal certification of certain testing, things like that, and you make sure it's transparent. You don't hide stuff. You don't, you know, do things in secret. You don't have uh, partisans roaming the the halls of the place with credentials and looking at ballots. These are common sense things that Democrats and Republicans agreed on. Four Democrats, four Republicans. I was one of the four Democrats, and I'm proud of that. We put out a product. We're proud of it. Arizona failed it miserably. Uh, And I think these other efforts in states like Wisconsin, possibly Pennsylvania, possibly Texas now it looks like, are on their way to failing that test as well. It's unfortunate, but at least we have a standard now that Democrats and Republicans could agree on. That's a good thing. You know, we could continue to investigate. They continue to do audits. We could have court case after court case. The result is going to be the same, which is going to show that this was not only a fair, uh, transparent election that uh, resulted in outcomes that some people in this country didn't support. And I think that at the end of the day, no matter how much Republicans want to create a different narrative. Really what this is about is, again, eroding people's confidence. When you're talking to folks about how to respond to what uh, people on the right continue to say about this election, and, you know, I think you've been so eloquent in talking about um, this big lie, but what do you... What would you say to our listeners? What's the best way to respond? Let's say you're at Thanksgiving coming up here and you've got that uncle who just continues to rail on this conspiracy (laughs) theory. What's the best way to respond to these uh, continued misinformation campaigns? I think part of it is just uh, tone in the way you frame it. I think we could all agree here that it's never a good idea to wag a finger in someone's face and either say or imply that they're dumb. Nobody likes to hear that. And so don't do it. That's not good a, way, a good way to get to anyone on any issue. And so just don't do it. And um, I think the way to do it and the way that I've done it personally in situations where I'm confronted by someone who's saying something that I know is, is false on this issue is to say, look, you've been misled. And I understand how it's human nature that if someone you know, trust, like, admire says something, you're, you're going to be more apt to believe that something because of the source. Uh, All I'm telling you is you have been misled. And uh, the people doing the misleading are doing it for their own selfish political purposes or financial purposes or sometimes both, but you have been misled. And let me tell you from where I'm coming from how I see the world and why uh, why this is what is really true. And then I proceed to say some of what I've said. But I think if we can tell folks, look, I don't blame you. Here's someone you know, like, and respect, and trust who's saying something, but here's why that is wrong, and you are being misled. That's really where I start from. That's awesome. Yeah. Secretary of State Steve Simon, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for all of your work on behalf of Minnesotans. Thank you for uh, being a vanguard for our democracy. Thank you for standing up to partisan interests who are trying to divert attention and resource uh, away from allowing people to vote. Your work is appreciated by everyone in this state, and you've been a leader throughout the country. Thank you for being here. Well, my pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We'll be back next week with our regularly scheduled programming, including the winner of last week's trivia contest, You Betcha OGs, and so much more. So be sure to tune in, rate and review us on iTunes, and tell your friends about the podcast.